Now we pick up at verse 8 through verse 15. And I'll, uh, I'll read and you'll have it here on the screen behind me. This is the word of the Lord. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, would you teach us? Would you teach us through your word? We need your help. We pray, God, that your your word would be open to us and that your spirit would apply its truth to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you likely know this story. You likely know what has happened. It's interesting, always interesting, to preach a text in Scripture that pretty much everybody has heard to some degree or we've seen depicted in art or popular music or whatever else. This has been around. The story has been told. But I think that we missed something critically important in it. I want to tell you before we even start, just remind you that you can feel free to text questions. If you have any questions, I will not tell anybody who's texting, right? But I will take five to seven minutes after the sermon to answer. So any question, whether it's about this text or it's about Christianity in general, or you're like, I've never heard a preacher deal with this issue, and you bring it up, right? I'm glad to take my time uh, after preaching just to, to try and answer those for a moment. So keep that in mind. Uh, my phone number is on the screen, and unfortunately, because we don't have bulletins, you're going to have to like hold it in your brain right now, right? Um, or prompt it on your phone. So here's what's going on. We've, we've already heard, we know what's kind of happened. Uh, we know that sin has happened. We know that Adam and Eve are hiding now, Anne Lamott has this beautiful conversion story of God chasing her. It reminds me a lot of the text that we're looking at. She talks about God being kind of at her heels like a, like a cat following her home, that God chases her. And here's what she says. She, she talks about uh, being very drunk and, and, and very alone and being in bed. And she says, after a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner. And I just assumed it was my father whose presence I had felt over the years when I was frightened and alone. And the feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. Of course, there wasn't. But after a while in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as sure as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this. This was part of her story of conversion was God's chasing after her. And I'm convinced that as Christians, if we're going to understand God right, we have to see him as the God who is constantly chasing after his people. 
So it's not just God nipping at our heels, really. Perhaps, like in this morning, you know, what, part of what you might feel and experience is, is not just God nipping at your heels, but life in general. Realizing that things aren't exactly as they're supposed to be, right? That all is not well beneath your skin. That all of what makes you tick isn't quite right. Something's off. We know it, right? So it's strange to attend church knowing that there's sin there. It's a weird thing to do, attending church and knowing that you bring with you your sin. But the Bible is very clear that this is what happens, that when we come to church, that's what happens, right? So whether you're Christians or you're an agnostic or you're an atheist, and I mean like a card-carrying atheist, if they had cards, I don't think they do. But we probably need an answer to the discomfort that we feel when we know that there's something wrong beneath our skin, and we don't know how to answer it, right? So if there's going to be a holy book, if there's going to be a religion, if there's going to be a philosophy that answers that beyond like the philosophy of the refrigerator where you just go and eat your cares away, but beyond that, if there's going to be a holy answer for it, then that answer has to come really quickly in the story because every person who's talking about life, every person who's looking for something from God has to recognize that there's something deep down that's not right. And thankfully, the scriptures only wait three chapters before they speak to that. Scriptures only wait three chapters before we start talking about that. So we know Adam and Eve have eaten from the, true, from the tree that kind of signified their desire to go it alone, right? Some of you might have in your mind an apple. It was probably not an apple, okay? It was probably some kind of fruit, but the point was, it was the wrong tree, and they knew it was the wrong tree. So they're found out, and the man and the woman, they shift blame. Eve blames the serpent, which makes sense, honestly. Like, that'd be the first place I would go. This is a serpent. Look at the serpent, right? Adam, he's got the guts. I mean, Adam, he's like, he's like a guy that you know, you know he's going to make a mistake, and he doesn't just make a mistake. Like, he runs full on into the mistake, right? What Adam does is he says, okay, uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's true, you know, but actually uh, the woman that you gave me is the one who made me eat, right? Now, those of you who have said to yourselves, Yeah, but if God is all-powerful, and if God created the world, then how did sin... Right, Adam is your guy, okay? Because he's not playing around here. He's saying, oh yeah, you're telling me I sinned. You made it. So what are you going to do, right? This is kind of Adam's speech. This is kind of his thought pattern. He's your guy, right? They've already quickly turned against God's generosity, which is what we all do. They've turned against his generosity. Uh, the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, he puts it this way. He says, man is learning quickly here. But his retreat into hiding, into verbal hiding, only puts a fresh obstacle in the way of mercy. So he's saying that all that man is doing, all that Adam's doing is he runs in the speech to God in, in this blame shifting is he's running from God's mercy. And that's the point, really, as we look at this text this morning. There's all kinds of stuff you could sit on and say, like, what, what's happening here? What's going on here? But you have to, you cannot miss this. God's mercy is coming after them. Adam and Eve and the serpent, they all insist on death. They insist on the wrong tree. They insist on going it alone. But God insists on life. This is the story of the gospel. God insists on life. He has the right to, to to the death penalty here. What they've done has, has subjected the earth to suffering until God redeems it and renews it. I mean, this is a major problem. He told them about the tree. They deserve death. God insists on life. God is the one who comes calling. Do you notice that? 
God is the one who comes calling. We need to see that God is the one who seeks. Okay? God is the one who seeks. So God's plan is to crush evil. He's the good gardener. He's the covenant partner. We've talked about covenant, this promise that God makes. We just observed it as we baptized Jack, right? That God makes this promise. And he's made this promise to put everything right. So God enters in to this blame-shifting situation. Everyone seems to know what's wrong. No one is willing to take responsibility, right? Anybody who has worked in an environment or has been a homemaker at home and has dealt with kids, you know what it's like when something happens and it's no one's fault, right? But this is what's happening. Something's happened and it's no one's fault. So God comes in and he assumes responsibility to fix what's broken. This is a miraculous response. Think about the God doesn't go in and lobotomize Adam and Eve and turn them into worshiping plants, you know? I don't want you to ever make mistakes again, so what you're going to do is you're going to become like plants that praise me from now on, right? This might be the solution that I would have. This is sometimes the solution I feel like with my own kids. You, dis, you disobey. I would love to make it so that you could not disobey me ever, right? Because it's annoying. And God has a chance to do this. If you're a skeptic and you say, religion is just about creating these crazy drones who will think and do anything you tell them, God has the chance to do that here, and he doesn't. Instead, he takes Adam and Eve, And he says, I'm going to heal you. This is all unusual. This is an unusual, if you dig into it, this is an unusual look at Christianity. Because in general, we haven't really settled into Christianity as it's given in the scriptures, I find. As much as we've kind of settled in to four different Christianity boy bands. You're going to wonder where I'm going with this. All right. Four different Christianity boy bands, right? That's right. I did a little bit of an internet deep dive on band boy typology, boy band typology during my sermon research, right? So there's a complex algorithm involved. I'm not kidding. There is an algorithm involved in boy band construction, right? Basically, you got to have at least four different kinds, right? There's the good boy. There's the bad boy. There's the boy next door. Everybody can approach. And there's the pretty boy, right? Christianity, as we deal with it, tends to devolve into these four kinds of ways of following Jesus and dealing with our sin. Religious morality, misunderstood Christianity, it looks like this. Good boy Christianity, here's what that is. You deal with sin by not making big mistakes. At least not as big as other people. This is the kind of religion you want to introduce to mom. It's a good religion. People do good things. I'm good. I'm not as bad as these people, right? We fall into that kind of way of thinking with Christianity. The problem with that is that there's no category in that good boy Christianity for real nasty sin that happens in our hearts. There's no room for that. You have to deny it exists because you have no way to deal with it. You're no longer good. Now what are you going to do, right? And so living in that good boy Christianity will tear your soul to shreds when you make mistakes, when you fail someone. Or there's bad boy Christianity, which is where, you know, you've done some things, you've seen some things, you're into Christianity, but you're not into like all of the good stuff associated with it, being the good kid, doing the right thing. You're not so into that. And honestly, 
God doesn't really care all that much about your bad boyness because he was a bad boy too. You know, he cleansed the temple. He's done some things, you know. God really seems to not be like all of the other kind of, you know, tie and shirt wearing Christians out there. So you're okay. You don't worry too much about being changed or transformed because, hey, this is who you are. You just tell the truth, right? This is you. Or there's boy next door Christianity. It's accessible to everybody. You kind of glide through life. God doesn't care about your sin. You can keep a distance from God because what he really cares about is that you attend church like at least once a month and twice a month when it's Easter, right? And then aside from that, you're kind of nice to your neighbor. And as long as you do those things, you're okay. This is anybody can be all right with that kind of Christianity. The problem with all of these, and especially the last one, which is pretty boy Christianity, right? The pretty boy Christianity. Here's the frustration as one non-pretty boy to other people that might be pretty boys, right? Pretty boy Christianity, here's the problem. The pretty boy, you don't know if they're actually moral. You don't know if they're good at all. They're willing to do whatever it takes to stay pretty, right? They will cut you to stay pretty. They will be the pretty one. They will espouse any political, economic, philosophical, social theory in order to remain on top. You wonder sometimes, are these Christians? What are they? Because they're very pretty. They don't seem to suffer the way that other people suffer, right? As a matter of fact, this is the kind of Christianity that most non-Christians say pushed them away from Christianity, right? So all of these boy band Christianity models, all of these faulty ways of engaging with God have one really big problem. And the really big problem is that ultimately they are all performers. They're all performers. They all keep their distance from God. In their own way, they say, I'm over here, and when I need God, I will seek after God. They believe they can seek and win God's favor by performing. All of us, at least some of the time, follow one of those models as a way of engaging Christ. So did Adam. So God calls Adam as a way to correct his faulty way of engagement. Do you notice how different the story is if Adam goes calling after God? If God waits for Adam to come chase after him, everything changes. But immediately, there's no distance in the scriptures between Adam sinning and God coming to look. That in itself explodes many of our ideas of what Christianity is. We think it's the other way around. You messed up, get yourself right, and then come and find God, right? Some of our excuses for not praying, for not going to church, is because we know, we say, well, I've got to clean up first. I've got to get myself right first. God calls Adam in order to say, that's not possible. Adam's in crisis. He's ruined everything. There's no way to hide that. His performance wasn't going to cut it. So he thinks he can't show his face. How does God respond to that? In 2012, after uh, a full day of music and arts, children's events, parking, yelling at your kids, riding buses and local trains, walking from your home, setting up camp 24 hours in advance, hours of waiting and standing in the sun, in San Diego on July 4th, there was one Thing that people were waiting on. The thing they were waiting on was the fireworks display that was to last 20 minutes in front of 500,000 people waiting in the sun to see them, right? 
And the problem was that due to a glitch, all 20 minutes of fireworks were ignited in 30 seconds. You can look this up. All right. 30 seconds of fireworks. Now, in the middle of it, you hear people go, well, it's over. Ha ha ha. Like, what if that was it? And they find out that it really was it. Right. There was anger, frustration. They waited all day for this. The, the guy who organized it, the producer, uh, he, he, he had an interview in the paper. And after profusely apologizing, you could tell he was a humiliated man. And he said this. It happened. I can't make it unhappen. That's what he said. It happened. I can't make it unhappen. All of us can resonate with that. Doesn't matter what he does. He's on stage. He's got nothing. He can't unlight the fireworks. He can't wait five minutes while someone goes and sets up new fireworks. He couldn't change it. What does he do? What kind of God does he need? Christopher Hitchens once said, Owners of dogs have noticed that if you give a dog food and water, take care of it, give it shelter, walk it, care for it, it will realize that you are God. Cat owners have realized that if you feed and water, water a cat, I don't, you know, whatever, you give a cat water, if you shelter it, if you take care of it, if you stroke it, if you post social media pictures of it, if you hashtag it, all the things you could do with your cat. In the end, the cat will figure out that it is God, right? We as human beings, live somewhere in between those two realities. Somewhere in between recognizing that God is God and recognizing that we are God. This is somewhere where we live. And so somehow, we have created a God in our mind, a placeholder, that's probably not God either, right? That somehow, this God that we've created... We show up with church. We show up at church and, and we're like half-bred to some, to, to some degree Christians, right? We've got ideas that are half-baked about God. They aren't exactly right. Uh, one a, a theologian that I love says, tell me about the God you don't believe in. You know, maybe I don't believe in him either. I think that's very true of us often. That we have ideas about God that are not true. And we bring those into our world. And we live by them. And we need to see the God that's presented here in the scriptures. It's not us. He's different. Christian and non-Christian alike. We spend our lives playing hide and seek with God. All right? We hide. Sometimes we seek Him. We hide. Sometimes we seek Him. We never expect, I don't think we ever expect Him to find us. We watch Him from a distance. We perform our religious duties. Okay? Okay? but we never expect to be found by Him, to be nourished by Him, to be forgiven by Him, to be washed clean by Him. This is one reason when uh, we take communion why I say, I try to say everyone's name. Because I want you to know that uh, you're found by God, not by your merit or your ability to fool people or your beauty or brains or your religiousness, but by God's iron will to love you. You. Redeem you. At the table of the Lord, God knows your name. It's not hide and seek with God, right? It's seek and hide. God seeks us, and we hide in Him. Not just once on the cross. Every time we take communion, He gives Himself to us. 
for grace and nourishment and healing. He covers us. He takes us off the stage. He makes the things that have happened unhappen. Let me show you two passages of Scripture that give us a picture of this. Colossians 3, verses 3 through 4. For you have died. That's how he talks about us and our sin. You have died. Your record, your, all that stuff. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Which means you are inextricably linked. You are connected to God completely. You are not seen by your faults, by your mess-ups, by the stuff that happened that you wish would unhappen any longer in the eyes of God. You belong to Him. Then in Galatians 2, verses 19 through 21, For through the law I died to the law. This is St. Paul talking about the fact that he tried to be good, right? He says, I died to the law that I might live to God. He gave up. He said, I need God. I need to be covered in Him. I can't seek Him. He has to find me. He has to grab hold of me, right? I have been crucified with Christ, he says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is not a threat. It may sound at times like a threat, like somehow, you know, it's not going to be me anymore. But instead, what God is saying is, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you in your sin. I'm not going to leave you to kind of inch around hoping that somehow there might be a chance of reconciliation. No way. God is going to hide you in him. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, Galatians says, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's amazing truth. You and I can be hidden in Christ. It's amazing. God seeks us. He hides us in Him. Jesus calls this abiding in Christ in the book of John. St. Paul calls it justification by faith alone. It means that we're forever identified not by our wickedness, not by the things we wish could unhappen, but by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Jesus also does something, or God does something else also here in Genesis 3. Do you notice that phrase, I will put enmity? You don't use that all the time, you know, that word. It's not, it doesn't make its way into your emails. Uh, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the seed of the woman. I will make you enemies, which is weird when you think about it, right? We forget that they're, ra- they're, they're like allies at this point. Adam and Eve, they've taken after the serpent. They've learned from the serpent. Now God says, no more. You're going to be at war. And now God picks teams. And here's the crazy thing. He picks us. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you serpent, in the seed of the woman. Who's us? And you're going to be at war. There will be a battle. This is weird because the the serpent has skills. Have we not learned that? He knows how to fool people. He knows how to get things done. All right? We have our head stuck in the arm of our jersey on this team. Right? We're not very good. And God takes us and he says, you're mine. You're my team. And through you, I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. The seed, the children of the church will be the means by ultimately accomplishing this. So here's an encouragement. If you are able to raise or support the raising of Christian children, not necessarily the most put together or athletic or least screen timed children, right? But children who love God and who want to love people well, you're winning. You are winning the war. Take it easy on yourself. Raising Christian children is the target. They may not all get into an Ivy League school, 
God help us in your bank account if they do, right? But you know what they can do? They can crush the head of the serpent. That's the war that we're about. And together, we've already pledged to go to war for Jack. To be with him in the middle of this. It's his calling now, just like it's ours. So here's the primary thing that we have to think about this morning. Does God seek you? Is that, do you understand that God is seeking you? Is he not really paying attention? Is he waiting to earn your way? Or is he seeking after you? Is he pursuing you? Maybe he's putting you in a church this morning that preaches the gospel, putting you around people who know Jesus. Is he seeking after you today? Either for new belief or new repentance in your life. So imagine you're a Christian, right? And you're hiding from God. You're ashamed. You're beyond repair. You think you have to be pristine before you can be in the presence of Jesus. But God revealed himself as the God who seeks you. So if you see him as less than that, if you see him as the God that has to be impressed by your morality, your religiousness, you have to pray more before you can be in God's presence. You are making God into something he's not. You're breaking the second commandment. If you see God as anything else than the God who seeks us, you're in sin. The God who seeks us is the one who's revealed by the scriptures, right? This kind of fake it till you make it stuff doesn't work. If you're messed up this morning, you haven't figured out how to do this Christian thing right, you've got a trail of stuff behind you that you're running from, you are in exactly the right place. For those who are looking for new belief, right? If you're just kind of in that place where you're saying, I, don't, I haven't given my life to God, I don't know what to do about that. If you need to embrace Jesus Christ for the first time, let me tell you, this isn't a religious thing, the way we understand religion. It's not a polyester thing. It's not Jesus is a four-syllable word kind of thing, right? It's not, a, it's not an old-timey thing. This is desperation. This is a need for God to come and to, and to be a person that we can hide ourselves in. What it means to belong to Christ is that if you're a mess and your world is crumbling and your heart is broken, if you've got bills to pay that you can't pay and you're running away from the repo man, including other stuff, you should know that they're not the only ones chasing you. God is chasing you for your good. And what it means to belong to God is to rest in Him. Is to say, I give up. What it means to belong to God is to say, you take my life. Let me hide myself in you. Like we were saying earlier. If that's where you are, man, that's awesome. And pray. Pray for that. Pray for God to make you new. Pray for God to forgive you of your sins. Talk to a friend. Talk to me about this change in your life, right? Figure out what to do next. Now, believing in God who seeks us, you know, we need to say that it has, it has real impact on the way that we live. It's not just about God seeking us. It's, it's what happens after that. What happens to God's people? What happens to his church? If they're a church that God seeks, if, if they're found by God, our foundness has to begin to define us. So I want to give you a couple of ways that we can live like a found community before the face of God, right? Before we're hiding from God. Now, if God finds us, we have to be a found people before his face, right? We have to be in front of him. And these are two ways also where we tend to show that we don't believe what we say we believe about God. It shows up in two particular areas, right? Worship and the way we reconcile or don't reconcile with people. Those are the two ways. 
So I want to talk about it. The first one is this. We need to worship like a found community, right? Worship like a found community. Now, we help you. We get you like a lot of the way there. Everything in the worship service tells you God rescues you. He seeks you. You notice that. Like it's shaped that way. There's a liturgy. We shaped it that way so that you know that God chases after you. But, and that's the good news. Here's the tough news. There ought to be a response to that kind of reality from us. As a matter of fact, it ought to produce in us a whole-bodied response. Do not be nervous about this audience participation portion of the sermon. All right? If you are physically able and willing, please raise your hands. Just raise your hands up in the air. Excellent. Excellent. You guys are kind of even higher. Just go for it. Just go for it, man. Just live it out. All right. Okay, good. You can put your hands down. Now you can clap your hands for it. Just clap your hands. Just say, make it your own. Yeah, there you go. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, great, great, great. Now I want you to say things like, amen. And that's true. And praise the Lord uh, on the count of three. Okay. Make it your own. Whatever you want to say. Okay. Uh, one, two, three. I heard somebody say, preach it. That's good. Woo. Awesome. All right. You know, I didn't tell you other things like, uh, uh, lay flat on your stomach with your face to the ground or, or weep or shout for joy or dance. All right. God will you know, dance or beat the drum or whatever. These are all ways in which worship is described bodily in the scriptures. All of these ways. I didn't ask you to weep or cry out. These are all part of the biblical teaching on worship. Worship involves physicality. I realize this is a challenge. Don't run yet. Okay, just think about this for a second. When your team wins, when my team wins, when our sports teams win, we react bodily, don't we? We react bodily, all right? We do all kinds of things. When our son or daughter gets baptized or when we get married, we react bodily, physically. When we get a good parking spot at the library, when we go to New Kids on the Block, when they come back through Columbus for some strange reason, we react bodily. When there's more than one can of LaCroix left in our crisper, it's Pamplemousse. When we look and the Aldi quarter is still in the console when we need it, we react bodily. But when we talk about the God who has removed our shame, who has taken off the exhausting stage, taken us off the exhausting stage of religious performance, we think about God saving and redeeming us. We do that without any bodily reaction. The Bible points out how the goodness of being found by God begins in our mind but can't stay there. Here's the objection, and I feel you. That makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable. I want to say to you and to me, I'm an introvert. I don't like public displays of anything. Here's my answer. Never make your comfort the final authority on what God is calling you to do. If you don't want to have a public display, then don't make it a public display. Make it a public thanksgiving. Make it public gratitude. Make it public joy. Who cares what the person in the pew around you thinks? about you raising your arms or saying something. They're sinners too. Big sinners. I know it. All right? They're big sinners. It's okay. Make it public gratitude. Make it public joy. It doesn't have to be hands raised. It can be hands kind of raised. All right? It can. 
It can be an amen. It can be the swaying. You know what I'm talking about. Don't be bound by anything else but the joy of your foundness in God, okay? And you might wonder why I think this matters, right? Why it's important to physically do this stuff, okay? When I am free in a context, and I don't, I'm just going to admit to you, I don't feel free often in our context to bodily express that. Why? Because I'm thinking in my mind, man, I don't want to make somebody uncomfortable in the room. It's not about, I'm worried about your comfort. I'm confessing that to you and telling you, I'm going to try to worry less about your comfort when I'm expressing joy for the goodness of the gospel, okay? So, so as we do that, right, when I do that, when I'm in a context like that, when I'm in a context where I can worship, where I can clout, where I, where I can clap, right, actually almost on time sometimes in the middle of a song, right, when I can shout out, I'm deeply moved. And it's good to be deeply moved. God made us to be deeply moved. The scriptures, when they talk about worship, they involve physicality without exception. Why are we different? When I eat good food, you know what I do? I sway. You ever watch me eat something really good? I can't sit still. I cannot. My daughter, when she was like, I don't know, a year old, I loved it. I saw her do it for the first time. I thought, that's my kid. She was eating something good. She swayed. She couldn't sit still, right? John Perkins, great civil rights leader, said, when people pray, their feet move. When we praise God, we move. We involve our whole body. We give our whole body to God. We're here in the ark, right? We got to worship like a found community. We were rescued from drowning. Someone pointed out to me this week, it looks like we're under the ark. That's not good, right? Okay, but we're in the ark, right? We've been rescued. When the Carpathia came on to the Titanic, the, the, those who were waiting for survival, not Jack, because he had already fallen beneath the water and Rose had the jewel. And anyway, when that happened, did the people go, mm-hmm, to the searchlights? Did they go, mm, to the searchlights? Did they whitely raise their hands, right? No, they did not. You can guarantee they're like, I am here. Come get me. And they probably kissed and hugged people around them and said, thank God. This has happened. This is true. This is good. You have been rescued. I have been rescued. Can I get an amen? amen. Yes. We've been rescued. Don't hear me say what I'm not saying here, okay? I think one reason why the spiritual body of Christ is bound up sometimes from doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly is because the physical body of Christ is bound up on Sunday mornings in merely cerebral worship. I worry about that. If you can't get there with us, all right, if you're that person who's going to be there and you can say, I don't care, I'm not doing that. I want to tell you that I am also of your tribe. I understand this. I believe it. You are free to continue to worship at New City, okay? Absolutely. I'm challenging you because that's what a good pastor should do. I'm challenging myself. We have to express this goodness in a way that is bodily, right? So, the found community has to worship like a found community. They need to worship like God came looking for them and found them and rescued them. So believe it physically, all right? Here's the second thing. This is the last one. We have to reconcile like a found community. If you belong to the church that preaches that God's after you, it will ruin you for gossip, 
and pride-based conflict. Okay, I want you to hear me say that. No more gossip because being found by God in your sin, it's ruined your appetite for feasting on the sins of other people. If God has found you despite your sin, it ruins you for pride. It ruins you for for pride-based conflict because you don't need to defend yourself because you're hidden with Christ. There's no more you, it's Jesus. He has loved you and covered over you and you do not need to defend your turf anymore. Somebody said something dumb about you on social media, my goodness, let it go. You belong to Christ. To observe this truth that we are hidden with Christ, that God comes after us, it, it crafts this incredible kind of qualification that allows us to love all kinds of people, to be bruised and to minister and to care for others and to be radically generous because we don't need to protect our stuff or our culture or our way of life anymore. And we can welcome the immigrant and the sojourner because we don't care any longer about preserving whatever we thought we were preserving. We are in Christ and we worship him and we follow him and we're given great freedom to do that in Jesus. This is what God's team does. In Romans 16, 20, there's a statement. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. St. Paul's referring to the church. We are here to crush Satan under our feet. We do that by being found by God. Every, day, every time we come together for worship, do you know what we're doing? We're gardening. Every time we come together for worship, this is a new Eden. This is a place where we welcome people in and they eat from the proper tree, which is Christ. And they're nourished at his table. We've got to bring people in recognizing that Jesus has come and has sought them, has brought them. Colossians 1 tells us that we're to reconcile all things in Christ, heal all wounds. We have to reconcile like a found community. Who are you in conflict with? Is that conflict worth, is it worthy of your foundness in Christ? Deal with it. Make things right. These last words from uh, Anne Lamotte talks further about the moment when she realized that God had come for her. She says, I thought about my life, my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends, I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian, and it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. And I felt him just sitting there on his haunches in the corner of my sleeping loft, watching me with patience and love, and I squinched my eyes shut. But that didn't help because that's not what I was seeing him with. Finally, I fell asleep, and in the morning he was gone. The experience spooked me badly. But I thought it was just a ghost born of fear and self-loathing and the loss of blood. But then everywhere I went, I had this feeling that a little cat was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, and it stays forever. So I tried to keep one step ahead of it, slamming my house door whenever I entered or left. And one week later, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand for the songs, and this time I stayed for the sermon, which was so ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. 
I opened up to that feeling and it washed over me. I began to cry and left before the benediction. I raced home, the little cat running along at my heels, and I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers under a sky as blue as God's own dreams, and I opened the door to my house, and I stood there a minute, and then I hung my head and said, screw it, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. So this is my beautiful moment of conversion. This is the God of the garden. He's the one who chases after us. Ruined people like you and me, pages of scriptures. We're between thinking he's God and we're God. He's God this morning for people who are hiding in shame like you and me. Afraid to believe in a God that calls them son and daughter. But never forget this. The God who was not trustworthy to Adam and Eve. The God who could not be followed is the same one who cared for them so. Who sealed his trustworthiness and goodness forever by seeking after us at the cross. We're found forever. We're found forever by the God who seeks. Let's take a moment and pray.